Okay. Well, we have a mother and father in this home who are going to be releasing tonight. But there are a couple things that were hitting my spirit that I wanted to just release over us as a family. We know that last week we came off of our birthday, our celebration of where we've come from and where we are now. And Yahweh was pressing us to remember where we've come from. And um, I feel like what he wanted to speak over us tonight is to break down in the Hebrew what it means to receive your identity. So I'm going to read that to you. I don't have the letters with me, but I'm sure that with all the Hebrew that we've learned and mom's released, we'll be able to pick up on what they are. So your identity is tied to the root to remember. It's our purpose. I'm sorry. It's to remember our purpose as kings and priests. It's an empowering voice that gives life as it frames tangible evidence. It pegs the truth of our scroll to our soul. It's that finishing to bring something new, a new beginning. It's that mark of covenant that says we are in him, he is in us, and we are of him. And what I felt like he was saying tonight is that we get the opportunity to sit under a mother and father. There's not a lot of families or maybe not a lot of churches as we would, as we would reference where we came from that have the opportunity to sit under a mother and a father that will stand and say, one of my favorite stories is when dad will talk about how his kids go to school and somebody will speak over them and he says, what did I say about you? And that's what I want us to remember tonight as we sit here. What did I say about you? Because all of those things that we were passed down, the things that we were given by religion are not what Yahweh said we are. And so we have a mother and father who stand in that place to tear those things down, to release us into the truth about what he says, who he says we are. That as he sends us in, he frames that, empowers us, and sends us in to our next with the true identity of how he created us. So tonight, mom, you're going to come up first? Okay. I'm, I'm excited. Come, you... I just, I, one of the things that I was going to say about dad is, can I just share a personal story? Okay. I wish I had the picture. Not super, super personal. (laughs) Um, A couple years ago, I had run into a back issue and to the point where I couldn't walk. I couldn't move. I couldn't set my home up to impress my siblings and mom who were like, we're coming over. And they show up and, and handle my home and send me into my next. But one of the really huge, I mean, that was monumental in itself. But dad came in and stood in a place where I had been fathered by religion and dealt with something like a key that had been in my back that had twisted me to make me think this is how I'm supposed to operate. And he stood in a place as a father and untwisted that and then sent me into what it looks like to mother, to what it looks like to be a daughter, to what it looks like to be a wife, to what it looks like to handle home. And my back problem went away. But religion had wound me up so much saying, this is what you should look like. So as I... We all have those stories, right? Across the room, everyone has a story of remembering a mother and a father who've stood in a place and said, the way religion told you to operate is not how I created you. And so they stand in that place to break those things off and release us into who we are, which is exactly what identity is, what it breaks down to. So 
I wanted to be able to just share that personal story because tonight I feel like in all that dad's going to release, it's just going to expose more and more of the things that religion said we were supposed to live by and release us further into what relationship says we should operate in. Are you guys ready for tonight? I want to see if I can show you guys. Well, it's not too much, but if you guys can see this page. Yes, this is his outline for just tonight. But this page, I would grab a hold of what Missy just said in the spirit because we, I I said this earlier, um, on Vox, but want to make sure that I'm saying it here because a lot of people don't get to see that. We had planned on taking the entire night season to basically expose the greatest lie ever told, and there were certain um, mile markers or benchmarks that we were going to release on how to do that. One of them was just introducing Torah portions, getting us used to even wanting to read the Torah, trying to figure out why are we doing this, right? So we just started introducing Torah, then we basically moved right into the easiest thing to do to break at least for me, to break up anything when we're trying to figure out what it is, what is truth is go right to the red writing. What did Yeshua say? So we basically started off with saying, okay, now that we're telling you guys to kind of read the Torah, what does that mean and why? Well, let's see what Yeshua said, okay? Then we did that. Then we went into Acts, which a lot of people actually call Acts as the, the fifth gospel. So Acts is the closest thing to the gospels um, after he leaves and you see a group of people being able to maneuver through what Yeshua just did in Ruach. And it's the closest book in timeline to the gospel. So then the next best thing is to then go, at least this is how I study. Uh, the next best thing is then to go to Acts and, and see what it was that Acts was doing to reconcile and work all of this out. So that was the next thing that we broke down. After that, remember when I said at the turn of the year we were either going to go back in time and we were going to figure out our heritage, and we were going to talk about the 12 tribes, we were going to talk about Judaism, excuse me, Judaism, and we were, going to, we were going to get into Abraham and more of the Hebraic heritage to understand where we're coming from. Or we would get into Pauline theology. And I kind of thought like, all right, Pauline theology is probably going to be later because that's going to be intense. But we really felt in the spirit after the turn of the year that we don't know if we're ready to fully receive our heritage until we completely break down what we've been taught in the New Testament completely. Because I can still see that we're wrestling. I can still see that we're, um, um, I mean, wrestling is just the word. I can tell that we're still wrestling this out. What does this mean? Why? Uh, it's, It's a big lie to uncover. And it's a whole new way to walk. It's one thing to read it. It's another when you're told to obey it. So then when it's like, okay, well, then we're going to start having podcast nights where we're going to be diving into how do we walk by? What does it mean to be Torah observant? Uh, Well, before we start saying those type of things, meaning when he starts giving us our identity and we begin to say those things, we want to make sure that we are fully wrestled through So we really felt like in order to do that, we're just going to go for it, and we're going to tackle Pauline theology. So that being said, I was thinking we were going to get through all of it by the night season. I don't think that that's going to happen. So basically just take a deep breath. We are going to be spending the rest of the night season on Paul and wrestling through the greatest scriptures. If it doesn't come from Yeshua, 
then it comes from Acts, but then what's the next biggest culprit? Who's the first Christian in the Bible? Christians will tell you that. The first Christian in the Bible is Paul. So if he's the leader to our new theology, because he was, you know, that's what he was doing in all of those books, or at least that's what we were taught, we're going to break that down so we can fully understand what it is that he was saying. Okay? So that's what he's going to be doing tonight. So like I said, I want you to grab a hold in the spirit what Missy said, because the Father's going to come in and untwist a lot. So if we thought that we, we had Yeshua's words twisted up in us and we kind of unkinked the key, then we go into Acts and we thought, oh, we knew what that council was talking about, and then we unkinked the key. Well, now we've got Paul. And it's going to be like, <laughs> so, uh, so get excited. But um, in order to be able to receive tonight, I, I had planned on actually pressing in um, quite a bit about what I'm about to say. And I had my notebook and stuff. And I just feel like I just want a free flow, if that's okay, versus breaking some things down. Um, before we move into tonight, I really felt pressed after last Friday to address um, address some things in the spirit. I do believe every single person here, every single family member is aware of what I'm going to say, but I just want to say it for the sake of saying it so that we can make sure that we are completely together and moving forward together and in unity. And what I want to say is... Um, at the, so last week we had a birthday and it was to remember the platform that we used in order to cause us to remember our story was a slideshow and we addressed this last week as soon as I got up I'm like okay but that doesn't tell the full story because there's context to a picture so what happened was we see the slideshow and I got um, everything from anger to crying to joy, to relief, to nostalgia, all across the board. One person could be like extremely like, I mean, I had comments like, I'm so glad we're not back at those first pictures. I had other people being like, man, I kind of miss how it was. I had other people being like, I'm pissed because there's people in those pictures that should be here. I had other people that were like, bye. Right? I mean, it was, I mean, some people were hooting and hollering and other people were confused. Some people were confused. Some people were confused. So for the sake of, um, not for the sake of unity, you guys understand what I mean by that. But I, I don't want us to move into the next wineskin, exactly what Derek said. After you rest, it's to press you forward more. It is not to press us away or out and I could feel in the spirit some scattering going on. And so I am here in the spirit to address that scattering before we move forward. Okay? I'm going to try to say this in the spirit. And I hope that you guys can, like, there is a lot of me. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and just like our history, there is a lot to our history and so it's really hard in words to just, or a slideshow, or words, or even relationship without that deep knowing to be able to express the fullness of what it is that Yahweh is doing. 
And, so, and, and, and part of the reason why I get super fired up about Paul is because I do believe that Paul is the most misunderstood human being on the face of the planet back then, now, and until we change that. And I hold a lot of those same things. Being misunderstood is, is a big deal to me. And so there's, there's a fullness here. And so I'm going to try to release this in the spirit, and I hope this makes sense. Um, we saw in our history some real intense, serious things going on. You couldn't understand the context. All you saw was people on their faces, a lot of maybe crying. It just was very somber. It was very intense. And then about halfway through, and we kind of addressed this, it just kind of flipped, and it was like, party! I mean, ultimately, that was kind of the fullness of what I was taking from it, of there was like, it was really intense, and now we're free. What I want to make sure that we understand is that that is not the fullness of the story. Because if we perceive that once, that what was intense was bondage, and then we move forward that we are free, when in reality, if you guys remember what we've been releasing, that the epitome of our freedom in the world is actually bondage. So he's actually trying to flip it. So there were some things that were going on, which I'm going to explain, that was super intense. But like we saw a lot of uh, fellowship and joy, it was because we had the freedom to embrace the suck in joy. But that doesn't mean that it wasn't, mo- for me, and what I feel for this family, is it was, it's been more intense the last two years than it was the first two years. Different intensity... But the weightiness, in the beginning, the earth's pressure was bad. The earth's intensity was horrible. Derek mentioned it. Competition between churches. Literal, literal people saying things over your life. It was an earth battle, so we got low. Now, earth is starting to lighten up a little bit. But that does not mean free-for-all. And it doesn't mean party It just means it's a different pressure because when you receive that kingdom standard, there is an intense pressure when we dwell, when we are receiving truths like this and what our responsibility is moving forward. So what I'm wanting to safeguard is the concept that religion was bondage, if this makes sense, and then freedom is free and see it like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to say that right. See it like how we've seen it. Remember when I was talking about dating? That dating is free and then marriage is bondage. I don't want us to say we were in bondage back then and then what we're getting married to is going to be the opposite. What I'm trying to say is that what we're getting married to is going to be bondage. And in reality, by the world's perspective, what we saw in the beginning was freedom. I just need to just say that in the, in the spirit um, because I want to make sure that I am expressing uh, our history properly um, because those first pictures that you saw, number one, kingdom heirs, being an heir of the kingdom was never in bondage. It was birthed in freedom. Now, that does not go against all the sermons that we've talked about. We all have our personal Egypts. We all have our personal bondage. But being an heir of the kingdom was birthed out of being awake. 
those first pictures, you saw us navigating earth to the best of our ability to be able to get us to a place. So, I mean, if you, if you take a circle and a cross in the middle and being on our face with half the chairs as being bound or religious, then we don't know what bondage or religion was because that was us trying to get out of what, what it was and be able to seek him to what is coming. Um, and I, and I, um, the reason why I feel like I want to, to speak on that is because I do believe that we're going to come full circle. And, and again, it, it's a slideshow, so we're just seeing pictures. So all of that is real, the, the relationships and that kind of stuff. But again, it doesn't necessarily depict the intensity. I think about some things in our history that, of course, you don't have context when it's on a slideshow, like enduring through the year of COVID. When everyone said you need to shut down, and we were not going to shut down, right? Or um, just, you know, there, there was a time prior to even changing the name of Kingdom Rose. We didn't, have, we, didn't have, we didn't even have chairs. So there was, he was reminding me actually of, um, <laughs> for those of you guys that are like OGs, if you guys remember this, it was called the 930 thing. We were, I mean, this is like, King, I don't even think the name Kingdom Heirs had come out yet. And we just were so on fire for what he was doing that we wanted to get together at 930. But usually the leaders were the ones that wanted to get, to, like the leaders were the only ones that were allowed to. So we asked if we could just come worship earlier than church started. And they were like, sure, upstairs in that corner room and just be quiet. <laughs> but then it would start to break out and it would get bigger and it would get bigger. And then people would say, oh, I want to worship. And then it got to a place where we would ask for the building on a certain night to be able to worship. And we were told no. So then we had a relationship with Eric and Kendra and they opened up the school so we could meet over there. And we started meeting as like a small group to just be able to worship or have Bible study. So there is a lot of history prior to the grand opening of Kingdom Heirs. So the birthing of what is now was always breaking out in freedom. Always saying, this is a perfect word right now, Logan. Logan made this for us. And it was awesome because he, he felt like he needed to explain it. And he ended up explaining the very thing that I saw. I was like, you know what I love most about it? I love that this is in an opposite direction of this. And then he's began to describe that the word is, as you guys always go against the grain. So the birthing of what was hunger was always breaking out of what was trying to hold her back, the body back. And we would, we would step out and then it would be a pushback. And then we'd step out and then we'd be pushed back. By the time we had the grand opening, there, uh, the baby was here. So it, it doesn't mean that earth's pressure wasn't intense, but there wasn't even a fight any, anymore. So I want to make sure that we all understand that those first pic pictures that seemed intense, that wasn't even the fight. At that point, we're like, names up on the board. I mean, it had been almost eight, nine months. We were on our own. I mean, this, we, were just, we were just getting started. And you can see even in the grand opening pictures how we were different. I mean, the baptism was there, but it was in the middle. I mean, that was a huge moment to even move the cross. That was a huge thing because we had the revelation of the cross being in the corner. 
and then needing to shift it into the center and then doing a circle and all of that stuff is part of our history. But I say that in the spirit because I want to make sure that we understand that as it gets intense, that it's just getting intense in a different realm. So there's an ease. All of us were born in the promised land is what I'm trying to say. So our history is the promised land. So it's, it, we broke out of something and birthed into that. And our, our birthright is that. And, and like I said, that doesn't mean personally that we don't have those, that, you know, that walking out. But I just want us to know that we started by breaking out of something or going against the grain. So the reason why I felt like I just wanted to address this is I just want to make sure that we understand that earth has gotten easier to receive his truth because we do dwell, we do trust, we do, we're family. We can, we can, now he's getting us to a point where he's like, you ready for this? You're, did I say something weird? What did I say? Oh. Like, you know, now we're at a place where he's like, I think I can trust you with this. You know, when you're four years old, you're not going to get the keys to the car. So it's like, oh, I can, I, I'm going to give you this mystery. I'm going to give you this mystery. I'm going to give you this mystery. And that is our history. As the mysteries come, you are being raised as king and queens. So it is not, even though it could feel like freedom or a free-for-all, it's actually getting more intense. And it's actually getting more restricted. And I don't mean that. It's, I, I'm taking this back to when we release that marriage is restrictive but fully free. And, and the reason why is because we're trying to break down about what we think about the Torah. So it would be an opposite spirit to say, we're going into grace and total free for all. And so we just eat, drink, and party. Yes, on earth. Because there is a deep work on the inside. Because before, you looked good. We looked good. But we were all messed up. Now we're getting some things in order, which gives us the freedom to be able to walk a certain way on earth. And I just wanted to make sure that we were all on the same page, that we are actually going back to an original intent because a lot of people have had questions. Well, I thought that this was free and we're going back into restriction and we're going back into law and we're going back into, you know, um, and yes, because I want his instructions but it's very different than what we thought. So you have to see the story from where we were in man's restriction to be able to come out full circle, to be able to receive that type of freedom, to be able to receive his instructions so we can get back to the father's restrictions. And I just don't want us to think that our history is linear, that it was, well, it was once religion and now we're free, when in reality, we were free on earth and completely bound in heaven, and now we're getting loosed in heaven and we're going to be bound to the earth. Am I saying that right? So, okay. Anyways, just kind of wanted to like bring a summation or bring a summary. I know I got up from that and I'm like, what am I, what do I, what do I, and just wanted to send us into the next seven years with being able to say that in the spirit. Sets you up. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like the weight of what we're continually diving into requires more and more boldness and more and more plain language 
or real talk about exactly what the situation is. And I just heard this in my spirit. He said, the Holy Spirit said, I want you to say this. At this point, we've walked a walk that you, we've been given revelation of things. Things have been unveiled to us. We've learned things that if you refuse to walk in or rebel against, it it's like scary. So what the Spirit said was, if you... <laughs> If you refuse to embrace the law, then your desire is to contend for counterfeit blessing. At this point in time, for this house, I'm talking about this house, right? I'm not worried about everybody else. If you are actively refusing to embrace the law, the Torah, if you are actively refusing to embrace the Torah, I'm not saying you're learning, you're questioning, you're seeking, you're pursuing, you're figuring things out. I'm not saying that. I'm saying if you refuse to embrace the Torah, you are desiring to contend, to continue to contend for counterfeit blessing. That is what we are walking out of. We are walking out of a system, an ecosystem that, that, that forces you to contend for a blessing that's fake. I w- <laughs> what? Oh, my God. <laughs> no, I don't even know. I don't know what I'm doing. In the Torah, in Deuteronomy 28, there's a dynamic, there's a system of blessings and curses. And this is a big backdrop, contextual picture to help us tonight. There's a system that the Father instituted in the Torah, in Deuteronomy 28, of blessings and curses. As the church at large stands right now, it is in a state of lawlessness. But they will contend for the blessing while in a state of lawlessness. And it doesn't work that way. That's why I'm saying if you refuse to embrace the Torah, you're contending for counterfeit blessing. Maybe you're being blessed. Maybe you are being blessed. Maybe this doesn't make sense because if you don't embrace the Torah, you're the church at large, and you're saying, no, but I have blessings in my life, then my question would be, then where did they come from? Where did they originate? Maybe they're good. Maybe they're good, but I don't want a good false blessing. I want his blessing. (laughs) If... Listen, the Father instituted blessings and curses 
We cannot ignore the curses because the curses are the mechanism to restore right relationship. The curses were a means to restore right relationship. Because none of the curses were permanent. None of them were a life sentence. They were curses. They were consequential for the people of Israel so that they had a a way to repent and obey the Father's instructions to get back into a state of blessing. Without the curses, without the loving instructions of the Father to obey, you can't obtain the blessing. You can't be in a state of blessing. And this is how the family of Yah operates. This is a this is a institution of how the family operates. If I have a lawless child who refuses to obey my instructions and then they want to go and embrace the blessing, it's not my blessing they're embracing. Until they restore right relationship, can they obtain the blessing that I have for them? Maybe they're blessed. Maybe they're good. Maybe they're getting blessed and they think those things are good. But it's not originated from the Father if they're not in right relationship. I feel like in order to, in order to, there's something about what's being said right now that's, I'm I'm not even plowing through 2,000 years of indoctrination. It's just arcing with, our origin. Like, I'm arcing with our ancestors right now. I'm not even plowing through 2,000 years of deception. And I feel like we have to be, I have to be as bold. People might hear that and think, what the, is this dude talking about? What in the, oh, so I'm, so the blessings are fake. Like, it sounds crazy. But you can't be in a state of lawlessness and also be blessed. If you're in a state of lawlessness, you have to embrace the consequences, repent and obey in order to get back in right relationship in order to be blessed. This is how the family of Yah works. This is how he navigated the the Israelite family through everything they went through in order for them to be restored to right relationship as his bride. Is this making sense? We started this whole, correct me if I'm wrong, but the the night season we started with, we don't know. And that's how we labeled our process that we were stepping into. As it stands right now, looking back on where we've been throughout the night season, Basically, what we've done is we have stepped back from the motions, not saying that we just go through the motions for the sake of going through the motions, but we've taken a step back from the worship, 
the Bible study, the, you know, whatever, the programs. We've taken a step back, and basically what we've done is taken a historical and theological look at our history. You can't, you can't separate history and theology, if you think about it. We can't understand our theology without understanding history because that's what gives you the context to truly understand the theology. Okay? Will you write stuff on the... I can't write and... So we'll start now and go backwards. Right now... In the 21st century, if you just run right, right, 21st century, we have our quote-unquote New Testament scholarship that guides our understanding regarding who Paul is and what it means to be a Christian. Okay, so you can just put NT theology, New Testament theology. This is what guides how the general church at large understands the context of the word. Look up any scholar who is Paul, and you can find endless articles or videos on how he's the inventor of Christianity, okay? In all kinds of dynamic, they'll teach you all kinds of things about who Apostle Paul is and what he did and what he stood for. The 20th century, put the 20th century up there. We'll just make, we'll just start now and make a timeline going backwards. And these are all the things that he's taken us through. In the 20th century, you have pseudoscientific race theory. Pseudoscientific, you don't have to write, you could, okay, yeah, that's good. Pseudoscientific race theory and mass genocide. What am I talking about? Huh? The Nazis and the Holocaust. Pseudoscientific race theory means that they thought Aryan supremacy was actually backed by science. Our genes are scientifically supreme to, to other races, whatever. Okay? And it was all undergirded by Christian anti-Semitism. 16th century... You have the influence of Martin Luther. You could see how these things are linked to the, the previous issue, right? And I'm just talking in broad terms. Martin Luther with the Protestant Reformation, nailing the 95 Thesis to the Catholic door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, and all that stuff, right? We've talked about this. We've talked about Martin Luther. We've talked about um, the Nicene Creed and all that kind of stuff. Between the 4th and 5th century, you have the influence of the early church fathers. Do you guys remember us talking about these things? In the 4th century, you have the influence of Constantine and Roman Catholicism. Okay?
Now, this is important because in order for us to understand the historical and theological background and context of where we're at right now in the 21st century, as we understand somebody as critical and pivotal as Apostle Paul, we have to understand that this context of this New Testament current day theology is the product of a trajectory leading all the way back to the second century in which Gentile Christianities, and I say that plural because there's been different forms of Christianity throughout history, but in the second century, Gentile Christianity detached itself from Judaism during the Roman period and developed its own identity and its own theological principles. Second. So when we entered into the night season and we said that we were going to be dismantling the biggest lie, it takes this kind of historical and theological work to really understand why we're saying what we're saying. Because ever since the disconnect between Gentile Christianity and Judaism, we've been on a trajectory that has framed our current understanding of the New Testament and the Old Testament. Right? I want to read a quote from a lady named Paula Fredrickson. She's a historian and a scholar of early Christianity from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And this quote came from a lecture she was giving at Yale Divinity School in February of 2021. She said, more often than not, a negative construction of Jews and Judaism served to convey idealizations of Christianities. Judaism became shorthand for the misreading of scripture and for the wrong enactments of it. The teachings against the Jews have driven has driven ancient Christian thought, which has become hardwired into Christian discourse as we know it. So basically what she's saying is that when Gentile Christianity detached itself from Judaism, it created essentially a virtual Jew. That sounds funny, but what happened was they created their own definition of who the Jews were to serve the purpose of making what they were doing appear to be superior or better. So at that point, everything Jewish or Jewishness or Judaism became a source of misreading of Scripture and for the wrong enactments of it. And it has driven understanding and discourse to this point that we understand it now. So this is the process that we've been walking through. We've been, we've been hitting on all these different centuries, tracking this thread, right, of replacement theology, the way we understand things now. Maybe we don't know the name for it, but we've been tracking this thread all the way back to the disconnect where somebody, some Gentile Christian sects decided that they were going to detach themselves from from the source that they came from completely and begin to construct a negative 
image and definition and perception of the source that they came from so that they could uplift and edify the new religion that was being created. So up until this point, that's kind of a, a review and a summation. According to Paula Fredericks, Fredrickson, it was interesting. This quote caught me as I was watching this and studying because it basically, to me, sums up kind of the, the path that we've been on and the, the path of discovery that we've been on to realize that you can't afford to just take somebody's understanding or take generational understanding without knowing the context historically. You can't just accept theology without knowing where it came from. And as a family, I'm proud of everyone because we have postured ourselves to say we don't know and it has allowed us to go through this process to figure this out. Most religious organizations or programs or institutions are not going to give you the time to, to explore this and figure this out. That's what going against the grain. Hold up, time out. I'm going to take an entire night season and, it, and it's going to make the worship team really upset because what are you doing? We're not worshiping. We're not praying. We're not serving the homeless. We're not doing all this. But this is important if you're coming from an apostolic place. It's important to understand what are we doing and how does history drive what we're doing? Are we doing things we don't understand? Right? An apostolic person will say, this is important to take the time to figure this out. A pastoral person might say, we don't have time for that. We've got people to take care of. We've got mouths to feed. We've got people to, to disciple, to raise. We've got people to counsel, right? I'm, and I'm not saying that's wrong. Neither one is wrong. You have to have both. So we decided that we were going to tackle common Christian misconceptions in three areas. The first one was Matthew 5, right, verses 17 through 20. Yeshua's words, his frame of mind, his expression of what his purpose was, what he came to do, and how that can be totally misunderstood. And that's why I feel like you have to be to go against the grain of 2,000 years of going down the wrong trajectory, we're talking about generation after generation of doctrine, of teaching. Remember in, the, in, the, in Matthew 5 and in the Great Commission, he emphasizes teaching. Not only believe the correct way, but teach the correct way. Then we talked about Acts 15. That's another point of common misconception in general. Okay, now we're, we're, we're at Apostle Paul, which my goal tonight is, is two things. 
I want to paint a contextual picture strong enough that when you read the word and you read Apostle Paul in his sayings, I want to paint a contextual, historically accurate, strong enough picture that when you read his words, it, it, has, to, it has to be understood in a proper context. If you, if you are operating out of this state in your understanding and you don't understand the historical context, it's going to frame Apostle Paul and what he says in a certain way that's not correct. Okay, so I want to paint a contextual picture, and I also want to make you hungry to understand that when you read the black and white words off of a page, if there's a simple, easy way to understand it, don't just settle for that. Don't let everything in your ideological uh, discipleship and your, your, the way you've been raised ideologically, don't just let that Determine what you're reading, what it means. Can I just say one thing, a couple mm-hmm. things? We all know at face value when you read the word that it is hypocritical. It's back and forth. Everyone's schizophrenic, bipolar, two different personalities and say two opposite things. So what this is doing is giving us the tools because we know that that's not truth. We know that that cannot be accurate, but it is at face value in English. That is the reality. That's, that's, not, that's not, you don't have to dig for that. All you got to do is read two, two paragraphs from Paul and, and, and you could have two different doctrines. You could, you, could read Yesh, you could read Yeshua's red words and have two totally different doc- doctrines. You could read Psalms and talk about David and have two totally different doctrines. So there's this, there's this concept that at face value, there's already things that should cause you to dig if it doesn't line up. And these are the tools that will be given to be able to, to do that. And what he just pointed out that he just erased is super powerful. Because you have to insert yourself in that timeline depending on how you want to read the word. So going back to what was up here, any church group may only go 100 to 200 years in their history. And they're going to point you back to their school. They're going to point you back to that doctrine, to that school. It doesn't matter what era it is. Uh, give me, I'm not good with history names, uh, Amy McPherson, Simple McPherson. What year? So in the 30s. She is, she begins, okay, so that's just an example. There's this, it doesn't matter how it starts. This amazing thing happens, and it begins an entire Christianese, or uh, what did you say, Christian, Christian, how did you say it? It was multiple Christians. Christianities. Christianities. I was like, Christians? (laughs) (laughs) It started, so 1930s, it starts another Christianities. And we have half of Flagstaff under this. That's not necessarily wrong, but the history is 1930. 
so the, co the concept of reading the word to insert yourself from your foundation of, or your, uh, what do you call your um, theological, what do you call that when you're in a denomination? When you read the word based off the denomination that you're in, you have to understand that that denomination is only a couple hundred years old. And then when you do look at some of the denominations that are, that are thousands, we're looking at Roman Catholicism. So either way, you have to insert yourself on where you're at in the timeline when you're reading the word. The greatest thing that I wanted to point out was second century is when Christianities began to pull away. When was Acts and when did Yeshua die? The first century, right, a couple hundred years prior. So you can see the pattern. For me, I'm super simple. <laughs> How, why would I want my foundation to point back to the beginning of something 200 years post-Yeshua? I mean, I understand that we're kind of breaking down the whole concept of denominations, but why not? Isn't that why we're in the mess that we're in anyways? I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me because it didn't even break off until almost 200 years later. So, what, so then the question is, is what was it prior to that? And if it wasn't Paul, then what was it and why did it start, why did it start there? And so to me, just simplistic, like when you think about if Christianity essentially started in the second century, then you have to understand that there's, some, there's already a 200-year gap when something started that we're following that may not be the original intent in the first place. But that's even digging and being awesome at that. If you're a part of an affiliation, you're probably only going maybe 200 years into the history on that foundation. And the only foundation that you're given is that doctrinal foundation. Not this is freedom. Because it's, we're not bound by, a, by, by an affiliation to be able to dig to the original intent. And at the same time, the more we dig, that's what I was getting at in the beginning, the more we dig, the more, oh, because every single, okay, so think about it, Christianities, Roman Catholicism, then you've got Martin Luther that breaks away from, you know, rules and regulations, and then all of a sudden you've got New Testament theology that says, we don't, you don't have to do anything, right? So you, ju you just keep following the freedom funnel. Do you see how this sits in the spirit, how we could view even our own history? Because if you're viewing our history with New Testament theology, you're looking at it from a freedom funnel. But we're operating in an upside, <laughs> upside down mm -hmm. funnel. So I just wanted to point that out, that yeah. this is the tools on how to get into the word because depending on where you're at in the timeline is going to skew what it is that you're reading. There are, when we read about Apostle Paul and we try to understand what was happening you have to understand that you're putting your 21st century understanding on common era century dynamics. Does that make sense? We call Paul a Christian, but Christianity was not a, uh, an established religion in his time. 
If you would have said, are you a Christian? He wouldn't have known what you're talking about. But because of our observations of him, we go, oh, that sounds like us, so he's a Christian. Does that make sense? So I want to... We're, we're going to get into the things that Paul said that frame why... Christianity at large is so anti-Torah, okay? But in order to even do that, I, like I said, I have to paint a contextual history in a picture so strong that, it, that it, when you read it, you're like, okay, if I understand who Paul says he is and what he says he's not, then it will cause me to line it up different, Okay? This is interesting because in 2 Peter 3, 15 through 16, Peter's talking about Paul. He says, Bear in mind that the patience of our Lord means salvation, just as our dearly loved brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom given to him. Peter said this about Paul in verse 16. He speaks about these matters in all of his letters. Some things in them are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable (laughs) twist as they also do with the rest of the scripture, to their own destruction. So when we say, like, well, Paul's, he's, like, difficult to understand, Peter spoke to this, okay? He spoke to, Paul is hard to understand in his letters, but those that are ignorant and unstable will twist what he said to their own destruction, So then that should make you not want to take something at face value. Being framed by your theological upbringing without understanding history. Paul was not a Christian. I think I've already said that. He never identified himself as Christian. So what so what did he identify himself then? Okay? Cuz this is one of the Lies that has been framed by our New Testament scholarship. Okay, if you, if I can just make New Testament scholarship a thing that has guided Protestant evangelical Christianity and how we study the Word. Okay, he was not a Christian. So what did he say? So in Acts twenty three six, It says, but recognizing that one group was Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the Sanhedrin, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. He's saying that in present tense. He's saying, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, okay? I am on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. In Acts 24, 14, it says, but this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, okay? When he says, according to the way, he's, he's referring to the followers of the way. Haderic, the followers of the way. That's what, that's what disciples and followers of Yeshua HaMashiach called themselves. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and I'm a follower of his. I'm a disciple of his. So Paul was saying he identifies with the followers of the way. Do a word study on Christian 
And how many times is, is it in the word and where is it in the word and who coined the term? Who, who, who was calling the followers Christians? Okay? And then he said, so he said, but this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers. There's, man, there's so much in here. Believing every, everything written in the Torah and the prophets. Where have we heard that before? In Matthew 5, right? He said, I came, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. So now, if you read Paul, and you have your 2,000 years of, of New Testament understanding c- coming down on you, trying to say, no, Paul said you're not under the law anymore. You have to, rec- you have to wrestle with this. So then what? <clears throat> we have to be conditioned to say, okay, so then what? But Paul said you're not under the law. But I understand Paul also said this, so then what? Right? In Acts 26, 5, he says, They have known about me for a long time. If they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. So he's, he's testifying about how people, would, who, people have witnessed his lifestyle as a Pharisee. Hmm? I think it, it's R-I. Is this making sense? I'm, I'm wanting to paint a contextual picture of who Paul is and who he's not. So when we get into what he said, we can have the proper context to understand what he said. Okay? And when you have this context in this historically accurate picture, it's very simple to then understand what he said. Okay? If you read about Paul on the road to Damascus, what is he doing? Is he in the foyer? Oh. I just thought he was like running loose in the. (laughs) Did I say the second reason that I was trying to, the second thing I was trying to accomplish? Did I say that? Paint the contextual picture. Oh, and then just stir up a hunger for you guys because we're just scratching the – I mean, this isn't even – right? Like, you have to go – this is just a, a a diving board for you to jump off of, okay? If you read about Paul's encounter on the road to Damascus, New Testament theology will will call that his conversion. Paul's conversion – from Judaism to Christianity. But like I said, in that time, because we're putting our modern understanding on what happened, we're saying he must have left Judaism because of his words. He left Judaism and converted to Christianity, but those were not established religions that were distinctly opposed from each other. Okay? 
So now you have to, you have to, when you're studying or when you get information, there's subscriptions in that information. What I mean is if I read an article the other day that was talking about, um, I read an article the other day, and it was talking about um, five things that you shouldn't hope for your church as a leader in the future. And it just caught my attention. It sounded interesting. So I was reading it, and it was talking about now that we've, you know, now that we're, we're living a new normal because of the pandemic, there's things that you shouldn't hope for as a pastor. And one of them, what one of the, it was a very bold article, and the, and the whoever wrote it was saying, "Your people didn't leave your; they may not have left your church, but they're not coming back to the building." <laughs> Does that make sense? This article was telling people because of the pandemic. It's a new normal now, and you should not, as a leader, expect people to come back to your building. Some of them are just not coming back, right? But that expectation comes along with the assumption that I'm subscribing to the fact that because nowhere in the article did it account for a body of people, a community that didn't go along with the government mandates. Right, so because I we never subscribed to the dynamic they're talking about, then it, some of it doesn't apply to me. Then, right, so you have to understand when you're getting information that you have to it it assumes that you're subscribing to certain things, and you have to find out what is this article assuming that I'm subscribing to. What is this information this person's teaching me assuming that I'm subscribing to, and you have to question those things. So when you read something, when you read New Testament scholarship and it says this was Paul's conversion from, Judea to, from Judaism to Christianity, there's subscriptions in there that, you're, that it's assuming you're abiding by. Okay? So if he wasn't converted, then what happened? Right? Then what? Because I'm, I'm confronting a trajectory, a, a New Testament theology that's been built up over centuries, I'm confronting things that are normally accepted and saying, no, he wasn't converted. He's not a Christian. <laughs> this is like slapping 2,000 years of theology in the face. Okay? In Acts 9, it details the road to Damascus, verses 1 through 31. I would encourage you guys to read that. At no point in there does he say, now I'm a Christian and I, I said the, the what, what, is, what is it called? The sinner's prayer. Like, now I'm a Christian. Like, it just, it, you read it, okay? In Galatians 1, 11 through 17, Paul is referring to that experience, okay? And I want to read to you what it says. It says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the good news proclaimed by me, by me is not man-made. 
I did not receive it from any human, nor was I taught it, but it came through a revelation of Yeshua the Messiah. For you have heard of my earlier behavior in Judaism. Okay, this is where if you're, if you're in fully engulfed in New Testament theology, this is where this totally makes sense that he converted from Judaism. Are are you guys with me? Okay. Paul is saying, you know what? Sorry about my behavior when I was was engaged in the religion of Judaism. Right? Like that's what it sounds like he's saying. How I was persecuted, how I persecuted God's community. It's almost like this is, this has to be, a certain aspect of this is like it's not just learning and knowledge. It's like the veil the veil is lifted because when I read this now, I'm like, how, how did I not see that? He said, how I persecuted God's community beyond measure and tried to destroy it. I was even advancing within Judaism beyond my beyond many my own age among my people, being a more extreme observer of my father's traditions. So if you look at the word, if you look at what the word is, Judaism, I can't pronounce the word in Greek, but he's talking about, he's because Judaism was not a religion. This is a situation where we take our modern day understanding and it, and we fit what's being said and we interpret it in our modern day understanding. He must be talking about the religion of Judaism. But it didn't exist as a religion, okay? So when he's talking about my Judaism, he's talking about the ancient tra- traditions of my fathers. My Jewishness is what he's talking about. He's talking about man's tradition, oral traditions handed down through generations. He's not talking about the Torah, okay? But when God who set me apart from birth, when God who set me apart from birth and called me through grace, he was pleased to reveal his son to me so I would proclaim him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with any human, I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who were emissaries before me either. Instead, I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So what Paul's saying here in his own commentary on his experience on the road to Damascus is not that he was converted to Christianity, but he was ultimately called. Let me talk about what, what was Paul called to. He was called not converted. Okay, that's my main point. In this whole thing, he wasn't converted to a religion that didn't exist from a religion that didn't exist. On the road to Damascus, basically what happened was he was called forth out of the ancient ancient traditions of his fathers, okay, that drove him to persecute the followers of the way who were also Jewish believers in the Messiah. Okay? He's saying that he was called forth to be an apostle to the Gentiles, but he was also called to Israel, okay? Which brings up another point if, let me say, let me, let me say this. 
This is an important contextual point to understand. Paul was called into service by the God of Israel in order to focus on Gentile followers of a Jewish Messiah. Okay, hear, hear that. Who, who, discharge, who called Paul? The God of Israel. For what? To focus on Gentile followers of a Jewish Messiah. Okay? The reason why that's important contextually is because I'm going to say this boldly too. Call, Paul, Paul's focus was to equip Gentile followers of a Jewish Messiah to abide by the Torah. Paul in his time, they call Paul an apocalyptic Jew. The reason why they call Paul that is because in his time, he believed that Yeshua's return was imminent. Okay? I mean, we all kind of do, right? Like, he's coming back. Like, we all think it's going to happen, like, next year. Right? He kind of thought that and even commented, like, you know, I think I know what I know, but I'll know more, you know, I'll know more later, obviously. But he, he believed he was expectant of the imminent return of the Messiah. So he understood his call on the road to Damascus was to equip Gentile followers of the way, Gentiles who hadn't been tutored and guided and taken care of by the Torah, right? They were foreign to the Father's instructions, and his goal was to equip those followers of the way on how to follow the Father's instructions and essentially adopt. They were grafted in, according to Romans 11, right? We're Gentiles. We were grafted in to uh, the olive root, according to Romans 11, and our biological substance is the same, but our spiritual substance is different. And that's how we get adopted into the root. We're getting adopted into a family whose father is the God of Israel, whose elder brother is a Jewish Messiah. Can you understand how even Deuteronomy 28, there's a family dynamic. There's a spirit of adoption. So a Gentile follower of the way can be grafted into the house into the family, remember when mom talks about there's, uh, when you adopt, literally, there's a time or, or a phase in which you will allow their biological nature or background to dictate their actions or their behavior. But there comes a certain point when you're, as an adopted son, where you realize that you're a son of a new family and you're expected to behave the way the family does. So Paul was called to serve the house. He was called to serve Israel, but he was sent to the Gentiles to bring them back into the house. So when Paul says, when they get together in the, the Acts uh, 15, 
Jerusalem council, and he's saying, no, Gentiles don't have to be circumcised. It's like saying that newly adopted son doesn't have to be expected to fully abide by every single rule of the house because their biological nature is not the nature of this family, but by the spirit of adoption, they will become mature sons in the house of God. Because he had an expectancy of an imminent return of the Messiah, he was concerned with the salvation of Gentile followers. Now, this is a, (laughs) I debated about, like, I feel like this is opening a huge door of just, like, this isn't, I don't even know where this is going to go. But he was concerned with their salvation. What is, what is salvation? What do we believe salvation? What is salvation? Short answer. What is it? What is it? You're saved, Sally. What does that mean? What's, what's the, you're saved, that equals what? What does that mean? You're his. You're going to heaven. Salvation, heaven. Salvation equals heaven. <laughs> okay. So this is, this is another situation where if we don't understand the historical context, then we won't, we won't be aware that we're putting our New Testament theological background, we're putting our understanding of salvation, which means eternal happiness in heaven, we're putting that understanding on Paul's focus for the Gentile followers of the way in their salvation. Why, what did he mean by that? In this time, contextually, when people talked about salvation, when the Jewish culture understood salvation, okay, and I'm saying the Jewish culture because they were his people, okay, and salvation was was a concern of Yahweh for his people, okay? So I'm going to look to what they understood salvation as to understood what to understand what Paul was focused on, okay? The way the Jewish people understood salvation at that time goes back to the blessings and the curses of Deuteronomy 28. And we cannot detach ourselves from, if we have a a God of Israel and we have a father who wants us to return to him, we can't understand that disconnected from the way his house operates. Salvation in their context meant Living a holy and righteous life according to the Father's instructions. It was the way they lived their life. It was their level of obedience, and it was the way they lived their life and their their willingness and their devotion to follow the Father's instructions. And the reason why they considered that salvation was because in Deuteronomy 28, when Yahweh talked to his family, he said, if you don't follow my instructions, you will be cursed. What were the curses? Right? Plagues, devastation, right? They considered salvation being safe from the wrath of the Father. This goes back to the Nicene Creed, which, you know, if we look at church, any church mission statement, basically 
cut and paste the Nicene Creed, change some words to be relevant for today. And all of that, that whole process skips over the Jewishness in the life of Yeshua. Do you guys remember that? In the same way, we look at salvation, whereas they were looking at salvation right here and right now. Yahweh could strike me down right now. If I don't follow his instructions, I will be cursed. Salvation was more a matter of safety right here and right now from the, from the wrath of the Father. So when you understand that, and Paul was focused on Gentile followers and their salvation, he had an urgency to get them to understand that as adopted sons and daughters grafted into the family of Yahweh, you have to quickly then transition and understand how to abide by the Torah. You don't have to get circumcised right now. Right? I'm just trying to get you to detach yourself from laying with prostitutes in the pagan uh, center of worship. Let's just do that. Right? If you adopt a son and you don't know his history and he comes into your home with some stuff that you don't stand for, you may have to just say, okay, these, there's two things you just cannot do in this house. I'm not going to expect you to live the way we live and operate the way we operate immediately, but these things you cannot do. Then, once you feel welcome enough and once we've been together enough and you're seated at the table as a mature son, there's going to be some expectations and there's going to be things that you're going to be expected to do. So we take salvation and we just like, we, we miss the level of urgency and the motive that Paul had as somebody who was sent to the Gentile people. What does it mean to be an apostle? You're a sent one. The word apostle is a Roman word. The reason why the disciples described Yeshua as their apostle is because they were talking to Roman people who would understand the dynamic of who Yeshua was because they called him an apostle. It's a Roman, it's a Roman concept, right? In, in Roman times, when they would conquer a territory, they would send somebody from their government who was t- whose title was an apostle to step into the new territory that had just been conquered to make that territory look exactly like where they came from. Essentially making that new territory an extension of where they came from in their government. Okay? Not, not go into the territory and make it look opposite of where you came from. So when the God of Israel discharged Apostle Paul to the Gentile, to the nations... To the Gentiles, he wanted, he was sending them in a, his assignment was to make their lives look like what my family's lives look like. Come on, somebody, this, this is the, this is the backdrop of Paul. And we'll get into the. I think we'll, we'll, we'll get into the scriptures of where, okay, Paul, the wrestling of, because I know somebody's thinking, many of you may be thinking like, but he said we're not under the law though. Okay, fine. He said, I'm not debating, he said it. 
But we have to understand the history and the theology. We have to understand our context and how our understanding has been framed. And we have to understand how the biggest mass genocide in the 20th century was directly or indirectly tied to the, the trajectory that our New Testament theology and understanding is it's in the same track. Can, can you go back and say, I don't even remember what you said. You said <clears throat> Paul was leaving. So when you were talking about how he was leaving his traditions to speak to a company of people that were being persecuted by his traditions. Remember when you said that? Can you say it again? So when Paul was, when he was commenting in Galatians, and he's commenting on his road to Damascus experience, he's, he's here, let me just read it again. He said, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the good news proclaimed by me, by me is not man-made. Him even making that statement is, a conf, is, a, is, is confronting his ancient traditions that have been passed down from his fathers. Because he's saying it's not, the good news that I've been given is not man-made. I didn't receive it from any human, nor was I taught it but it came through a revelation of Yeshua the Messiah. For you have heard of my earlier behavior in Judaism, how I persecuted God's community beyond measure and tried to destroy it. I was even advancing within Judaism beyond many my own age among my people, being a more extreme observer of my father's traditions. Is that what you're talking about? You were trying to explain how Paul can't be trying to convert a group of people to something he wasn't, something that wasn't, and converting people to something that wasn't. Like it wasn't there. You said it like that. Like he didn't leave a religion that wasn't established to convert to a religion that wasn't established. Our understanding thinks he converted from the religion of Judaism to the religion of Christianity, and you can't convert from something that doesn't exist to something that doesn't exist. And it wasn't a conversion. It wasn't a, it wasn't switching from one place that opposes another place. Right? He was, he was, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Oh, and by the way, when I talk about Paul wasn't a Christian. He never, he never proclaimed that. And actually, the followers of the way never proclaimed the name Christian. Okay? The original followers of, uh, of him never called themselves Christians. Okay? But when Paul identis- identified himself as a Pharisee of Pharisees, present tense, a follower of the way, identified with the Jewish followers of the Messiah, and, and talked about how people could testify to his Pharisaic lifestyle. He said all of these things in the book of Acts after Christ, after he encountered the Messiah. 
he encountered the Messiah and he didn't say, I'm a Christian now. So, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to conclude with that. Do you, unless you had something else you wanted to add conclude or anything? what? Well, I'm going to stop gonna, right here. I'm going to stop. Gonna keep going at the end? No, I, I just I wanted you it. to repeat one part. Which part? I, no, you already tried. <laughs> keep going. That's it. That's, <laughs> all, that's the end of my thing right there. I, I, in my present understanding, that's what Paul was referring to. There's not a phrase for it, but like, ex, like, uh, right. Remember how mom draws the, the circles, right? The Torah is in the middle and you have to separate the Torah from all the biblical or all the, uh, oral laws and traditions, in my mind, that's the distinction he's making, whereas the common misconception framed by our present understanding will be, oh, he's denouncing Judaism as a religion, and now he's a Christian, right? Because a lot of our understanding of Christianity is shaped by what Paul said and did. Does that answer your question? That's my understanding, is that when he talks about the ancient traditions of his father's He's not talking about the Torah. If he was, because he talks about the Torah quite a bit, and if he was, he would say the Torah, right? So Paul's story is really powerful uh, when you think about what he just said about how he, because you're watching him, I don't want to undermine what you said, but for the sake of just saying it, you're watching Paul convert, but not to what we think. He he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. When he has this encounter, he now understands what Yeshua was doing. So, but in yeah, our actually, New Testament, thing after you're done. in our New Testament, New Testament theolo- the, like theology, we're thinking that that means he's backing up Yeshua, which was to break also away from his heritage. So then we lump those two together, starting of Yeshua, and then everything is new. Versus now that we've started in Matthew, we understand what Yeshua was doing. He was there to break off the oral traditions and all the extra ways of trying to follow the Father's instructions that were not originally in the first five books. They were added to. So Yeshua comes and he breaks those things off, and then Paul is one of those people that Yeshua was flipping tables for. Paul was that guy. He was the one who was persecuting these people. Yeshua was not persecuting Gentiles. But Paul was because he was one of those people that Yeshua was flipping tables for. But the context of Yeshua himself does not mean that he was there to just rip apart all the Jews because he was one and then start something new and then Paul's like, that's a good idea. I'm going to be an apostle for that. And then ran off. He was awakening to being corrected by Yeshua in his Phariseeness 
to not follow those, uh, how did you say it, the ancient traditions of man because he just said I had an encounter that was not man-made. He's making the point, none of this has to do with the father. There's a bunch of man stuff here and I can't explain it. But he was a Pharisee that was following man's tradition. We're not saying that we're converting to Judaism. We're saying we're wanting to be Torah observant. Nowhere in there does Yeshua ever say to not follow his father's instructions, nor does Paul wake up to say you shouldn't follow the father's instructions. He says you should stop following the traditions of man. Interesting. So his whole encounter is not a conversion into a new thing. His whole encounter is the awakening to the original thing. Mm -hmm. And we mess it up because we're thinking he was converted to a new thing. And then we'll use Paul to justify us to be able to stay in a new thing, when in reality, his whole story is about being converted to the original. Yep. Does that make sense about Paul? Mm -hmm. Because, go, go ahead. So do you guys remember when we talked about Matthew 5, Yeshua said, unless you're more righteous than a Pharisee, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven? So when Paul says, I, w I was a Pharisee, I am a Pharisee of Pharisees, right? He's talking about how, and he said he was uh, progressing beyond many people his age in his Pharisaic lifestyle. So he was so, right? You can imagine somebody who knows the law backwards and forwards. They know the letter of the law, right? But he was, he encountered the Messiah on the road to Damascus and took him through a process to where it was written on his heart, right? That's the way you can enter. You can be more righteous than the Pharisees because the law is written on your heart. It's not just a, an external thing, okay? In Galatians 3, it says the Torah is a tutor, a guide, and a caretaker. Do you guys, you guys have heard of the term bar mitzvah? What is that? Huh? To be a son of the law. I, I've, <laughs> right, we know, we know, I think we know, like bar means son. Mitzvah is just a way to say mitzvot, like the law, the commandments. When I was reading about this type of ceremony in Jewish culture, when they have a bar mitzvah for a 13-year-old boy, what they're recognizing is a transition from the Torah being a tutor, a guide, and a caretaker to where they cross over into a, a full-on relationship engagement with the Torah themselves. And so I was just impressed by the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to continue leaning into it, that Paul was not converted to Christianity he was called to commandment. He's a son of commandment. And I also felt the Holy Spirit say that over this house, that we are sons of commandment. That's what Paul's mission was with the Gentile followers. He just, he knew they were adopted. He knew they were grafted into the root. So they were, they were beneficiaries of the commonwealth of Israel. They were in the family, but his ultimate aim was to make them sons of commandment. Because he knew that their salvation depended upon it. Okay? There's a progression there. So 
I'm You're good? Yeah. I wanted to add um, just a couple of things. He actually mentioned this earlier, and maybe you're going to get into this, but just to kind of get you hungry. Think about, cons- just think about the whole New Testament. Paul wrote letters to who? It's interesting that all of his letters were to the Gentile communities trying to figure this out, and he was correcting them and guiding them. If he was trying to get Gentiles to punish or to, if he was trying to tell the Jews that they were wrong, why are all of his letters not to Jews saying, you've got this wrong, there's a different way? But instead, all he is a Jew. And all of his letters are too, like, because that's what I was trying to get at. When you said that, it was, like, super powerful, but it's like I couldn't, I, I still need to go back to hear what you said. But it was like you were saying that he, he, was, he was called to the Gentile community to make them look like where he came from. That's why his letters are to us. They're not the other way around, which that right off the bat, already, why would he have to, why would there be a thing where he has to tell the Gentiles you don't have to follow the law? They already weren't. It wouldn't make any sense. So does this make sense when you go down the line of New Testament theology? We have created a thing that all Paul was focused on was making sure that Christians know that they are free and full of grace and you do not have to follow the law. How does that make any sense? We already know that. We don't need an apostle to try to teach us what we already were born into. What is his purpose then? I mean, just that concept alone kind of just flips the whole script because we have thought that that's what he was there was to teach us how to be free and that, and that we, are under, we are not under the law and that we are under grace. But Gentiles inherently would know that because they didn't have the Torah. They didn't know, they didn't, they didn't know that, so they wouldn't need to be taught that. They already were. So let me point to another thing about salvation because the concept of salvation this is just so powerful with our history because I think about the season that we went through about being apostolic. And then just thinking about why the apostolic was coming forward because we were sent to make our community look like where we came from. And so many people, where'd you get that word? And I've heard apostles all the time. And usually if you're an apostle, it's because you can really declare and decree and you've got authority. But think about what that type of apostolic calling was to have an encounter. Think about our history. To have an encounter out of something that was persecuting something to be sent to the ones that are being persecuted to make them look like where you came from because you're awake. (laughs) That's a whole crazy apostolic anointing. Anyways, so it just makes me think of the history. But you think about... um, uh, where was I going with apostle? Anyways. Oh, because with apostles came the revelation to our family. Heaven on earth now. Okay? Heaven on earth now. So if you think about the concept of salvation, what he just said, salvation in Christianity means later or in heaven. That's why this doesn't matter because one day it, that's just 
Believe in him means salvation, and then you know where you're going. And that's the story. But salvation, when we talk about heaven on earth now, why do you think Yeshua was saying such a bold word? He was declaring his own name. Salvations, the word salvation in Hebrew is Yeshua. So when we say, well, what is salvation? That's why in the Old Testament at the Red Sea, he, he said, look nigh, look out, your salvation is near. It wasn't talking about look out there because heaven is going to sweep you up. It was look, I'm going to give you a firm foundation. You're going to have to go low. You're going to have to mm -hmm. go down, but it's going to be on dry ground. That is your salvation. Look, your salvation is right there. So then Yeshua shows up on the scene, and he's giving them access to salvation right now. So that's why that whole, that's why the, the community that, that didn't, uh, I'm trying to think of how to, how to say that. The, commu the community that missed Yeshua said that they already had it. But then, but then salvation showed up, and they missed it, including Paul. Then Paul has an encounter and then recognizes, my salvation is here. So his testimony is really to speak out with his, with his community that missed it who salvation is and to help the Gentiles who definitely were understanding it, but to look like the way that they were, that, to be able to follow under the guidelines of salvation. Because salvation is his name, so it's not just a concept. So there's a journey. The first time Yeshua is ever introduced in the Bible is in Genesis. Sorry, in Exodus. Isn't that interesting? When you're on a journey, the first time Yeshua is ever spoken of is in Exodus. That's not a leaving, that's a journey. So I just wanted to point that out when he was talking about like the concept of salvation and what it was that Paul was speaking to. Yeah, so we'll so eventually we'll get into the nitty gritty of the things that now that we have this context, and like I said, this should just be a springboard for you guys to to continue to dive into this. Um, but isn't it interesting though that if we have a father who gives us a mechanism to restore relationship with him, like we talked about in Deuteron Deuteronomy twenty eight. And it's, it's the Torah is the, me, is the mechanism that he gives us to either maintain or restore right relationship with him. Wouldn't that make sense then that the enemy would want to cut that off? Like the Torah is the bridge of restoration. In warfare, right, if you have something that is your source and you have to cross a bridge to get to it, what's the enemy going to do? They're going to burn that bridge so you can no longer be connected to the source anymore. Isn't that interesting? Like we, it, the enemy is so slick that he would cut off your means of restoration with the father. Now, listen when he says that the Torah is the mechanism. Because the Torah is Yeshua. He is the word made flesh. That's why it says things like mm -hmm. he tabernacled among us. The word became flesh. 
what we're bringing to the table isn't a, well, just leave Yeshua. You don't need him. You just need the Torah. But, but the problem is, is that we've had 2,000 years of all we need is Yeshua. So we're just bringing that concept that it's one and the same. You cannot have one without the other and vice versa, which is breaking down the theology of old versus new. And that whole concept of what was going on during that time was not going on during that time. Um, you made a comment. You said, who was calling them Christians? Can you answer that? So this is like a whole nother thing. If King Agrippa was calling followers of the way Christians, he's the one who said that. I, I can't remember. There's three times in scripture, and I can't name them off the top of my head, but I, I have all the information. I've done a study on it. There's three times where the word Christian is stated in scripture. Now, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because when we said that Christianities were not birthed until second century, you could find the word Christian in the Bible and say, well, that's not accurate. But when we're talking about Christianities, we're talking about a religion formed off of that concept of what was scripturally when it was a demeaning word calling them Christians. And, and we've, we've already preached on this, but it was when Paul said, count it, what, count it joy that you would be called a Christian. So we're like, yeah, the world is going to just, like, I'm going to count it joy when the world says, you Christian. It, that's, not the, that's not the context. The context is, is that was a belittling word, a belittling, am I saying that right? A belittling word because the word itself meant uh, little, what did it mean? Little Little Christ or so, little, little anti? Yeah, so I'll, I'll read it. So, it's, so write this down because I want you guys to study this because this will help. So Acts 11, 26. Acts 26, 28. And 1 Peter 4, 16. Those are the three times the word Christian is mentioned in the scripture. <clears throat> It originated from the city of Antioch as a somewhat derogatory label from a group of people that had no understanding of who the followers of the way were and what they were about. It was politicized. The roots in the scriptural context of the term title Christian as a distinction or way of identifying Yeshua's disciples was a combination of the Greek words Christi, which is G5547, if you care to go like super deep into this, and I can give you guys this which means anointed, and anosios, which means unholy or wicked. So what King Agrippa was, he was watching the followers of Yeshua, okay? And he said, oh, those are Christians. And what he was saying, and why this was a politicized term, is because he was saying, those are followers of a wicked anointing. You're following a wicked one, okay? Okay? Coined by uh, King Agrippa, basically created a term referring to the disciples as followers of a wicked and unholy one. So in 1 Peter 4, 6, when he says, Yes, yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. This sounds like a war cry. Like, if you're, if you're suffering for the name of Christ, don't be ashamed. Okay? 
Did you, is this, you want me to go into all? It says, yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on his behalf. He is not saying don't be ashamed in your suffering. He is saying don't be ashamed amidst the false accusation as a follower of a wicked and unholy one, which is inherent in the term Christian. So the purpose of all that is that there was not a Christian religion. So once again, you read something like that, fast forward New Testament theology, and now you've slapped all of your theology onto that word Christian. The concept is, is regardless of even the words around it, he, he, he's not talking about the Christian religion. He's talking about a derogatory name. But, but like I said, regardless of what he's saying, what he's saying is powerful because isn't that interesting? I think we've all been accused of following an unholy, you know, I don't, I mean, list all the things we've been accused of. You know, it's wicked. You know, we've, we've, we've renounced everything. But regardless of what he's saying to not be ashamed of, regardless of that, just the concept alone of what he's teaching on, we slap our theology as if he's talking about the Christian religion, which was not there yet. He's talking about the root words, which means it mean it does mean little Christ, but it was like a derogatory, like a like a like a the wicked anointing those little ones and 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 watching them follow because everyone identified at that time as being haderic, which means followers of the way. So that wasn't a concept when they were being called that. It was a negative thing. So he's basically saying you're going to get accused. Count you know basically count that joy. So during, I'll just finish this. During this time, Peter encouraged the hearts of the disciples as they endured overwhelming disrespect and disdain for their faith by the use of the label Christianos. He ministered to them in that verse, explaining that if, if they suffered because of a false accusation of following a quote-unquote unholy, false, or wicked Christ, that this was no reason to be ashamed of Yeshua. Okay. And it even goes into, there's an interaction in scripture where King Agrippa tells Apostle Paul, you've almost convinced me to be a Christian. With this understanding, you're understanding that King Agrippa is like mocking Apostle Paul saying, you've almost convinced me to follow this wicked one. And Paul's like, I'm a Hebrew. If he, he starts speaking to like, no, this is, you can mock all you want, but this is who I am. Right? Says, oh no, but I am a Christian. You should. He says, I'm, that's when he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Amen. All right, family. Sons of commandment. 